You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Hey guys, this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Kip Adams. He's a director of conservation at the Quality Deer Management Association. I love talking to QDMA, man. They have so much knowledge around uh, deer harvest statistics, uh, optimal sex ratios, um, how to hunt deer, what they're foraging, what they're eating on uh, throughout different times of the year. Let me know if you guys are enjoying these episodes of the QDMA, though. I had Lindsey Thomas Jr. on the podcast a few weeks ago, or if there's someone else you guys want to hear on the podcast or some particular topic you would like to see discussed, just uh, shoot me a message on Instagram. It's uh, Christian Babcock, but let's get to this episode. So to all the listeners, just to context, this is Kip Adams, Director of Conservation at the Quality Deer Management Association. Uh, Kip, can you give uh, the listener maybe a little context into what you do at QDMA and maybe why you, you join the organization? Sure. Uh, I'm our Director of Conservation, uh, so I, I like to say that I have the best job at QDMA, uh, I'm a, I'm a wildlife biologist by trade, and uh, first and foremost, a deer hunter, though. So uh, that plays in a big role in, the, in what I get to do at QDMA. But uh, I oversee our REACH program. Uh, that stands for Research, Educate, Advocate, Certify, and Hunt. And uh, so uh, I get to kind of oversee uh, some of the coolest things that we do for, for hunters and uh, and landowners and uh, anybody who's interested in deer. So uh, I have my hands in, in a little bit of a lot of things that, uh, that are deer-related and uh, all things that are core to QDMA's mission. So uh, we like to say that QDMA is that it's where deer hunters belong. And uh, it's because uh, nobody nobody fights harder for deer hunters, uh, ensuring that we have uh, good huntable populations of deer well into the future. And uh, so of all the, the programs that we have, the, the educational programs, the hunting programs, et cetera, um, I get to have my fingers in all of that. So uh, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, man, that sounds like an, an awesome job. And I know that you get to I was reading up today, you get to do some writing, um, like that, that probably goes down to the educational portion of what you do. Um, but for, I feel like in, in the hunting world, the, the word conservation is very much a buzzword. And so for people that don't, that hear that a lot, that don't know exactly what that means, what does that mean from a perspective of whitetail and, you know, how does, how does QDMA actually go about, you know, conserving the whitetail population? Oh, that's a great question. And you're right, because people look at conservation differently. Um, you know, somebody who cleans a stream bank or makes sure there's, there's fresh water. Um, hey, they're being a conservationist. So anything that we can do to, to conserve our natural resources or to enhance them uh, technically falls within that, that conservation uh, framework. Uh, from our end of it, though, uh, QDMA's mission is, is to ensure the future of white-tailed deer, wildlife habitat, and, and our hunting heritage. So uh, we come at conservation making sure that there are very healthy deer populations, uh, there are very healthy habitats, and, uh, and there are opportunities to hunt deer. And the nice thing about that is white-tails are a keystone species. So uh, there are so many other species that are reliant upon them or, or are impacted by you know how states and provinces manage deer. So by us being able to provide good information uh, to, to landowners and to hunters, 
on how to, to be good stewards of our natural resources and make sure we, we take care of deer by default, then we are impacting a whole bunch of other wildlife species. So uh, we tackle conservation through whitetail deer and through wildlife habitat. Uh, and in, in doing so, get to have uh, an imprint uh, much, much larger than just deer themselves. What do you mean by that, though? Uh, first, you know, you're impacting other species besides whitetail. Does that mean, you know, while we're while we're putting in food plots or doing burns, that we're impacting other critters that are looking for fresh forage or turkey that can benefit from food plots? Or, or how does that what how does that exactly look? Yeah, you're you're on it there, and it's much bigger than just food plots, though. It's it's more so, you know, forest management and uh, and early successional vegetation management because because those components of habitat are far larger than what we have in food plots. So, uh, I'm you know a fan of non-game animals. I'm a fan of songbirds. You know, there's a lot of people out there that consider themselves birders and and they like butterflies and that kind of uh, thing, but uh, very few of those self-proclaimed birders and butterflies you know, are enhancing any habitat for those species. Some certainly are, but a lot of it is, you know, in my backyard or here around the house. However, deer hunters, on the other hand, in the name of deer, you know, enhance millions of acres of habitat every year, many of which are extremely beneficial for pollinators like butterflies, are very beneficial for a lot of songbirds and other non-game species. So, uh, you know, a lot of work is done by deer hunters in the name of deer, but man, there's a whole suite of other wildlife species out there that are benefiting from it that would not be benefiting, you know, um, if it wasn't for deer hunters and the work they do. Yeah. So you, you said that, I know you're a, a taxidermist, you, you studied wildlife biology. Where's, where'd the interest come, you know, to go to college and study wildlife biology? Is, is the QDMA somewhere that you thought you'd end up or how did that progression look yeah. like? Actually, QDMA, uh, I would have never dreamed I would have ended up at QDMA. Um, Mostly because, uh, you know, when I grew up, um, I learned at an early age uh, that, that I had an opportunity to do something uh, with wildlife. Uh, you know, a close friend of mine, his father was a game warden. Um, so I got exposed uh, to, to wildlife biologists and, and others uh, like that at a very early age. And, uh, and I knew immediately, man, this, this is what I want to do. Uh, my father took me to the woods uh, as soon as I was big enough to walk. You know, I come from a hunting family, both of them. Uh, my grandparents on both sides of my family hunted, all of my uncles hunted, my cousins hunted. Uh, it was the most natural thing in the world. So uh, I wanted to be a hunter. You know, I was, an, I mean, uh, somebody that had an opportunity to work with hunters and manage wildlife. So, so I knew from an early age, hey, this is what I want to do. But at that time, and uh, uh, the only jobs really for a wildlife biologist were for a state or a federal wildlife agency. Um, this is really before, you know, the consultant world uh, was a, a possibility. So Almost everybody who was a wildlife biologist worked for a state or federal wildlife agency. So I grew up wanting to work for state agencies. So uh, I, I went to Penn State for my undergraduate degree. Um, was told, you know, very bluntly, look, if you want to be a biologist, uh, you need to, to get a, a graduate degree. So I went to uh, the University of New Hampshire and uh, got my master's degree. And then uh, from that, uh, applied to numerous state agencies. Uh, the wildlife is a very competitive field. So actually, oh, yeah. the only only place that I got a job was for the state of Florida. And uh, so I ended up in, in central Florida and uh, ended up that was the exact right thing for an aspiring deer biologist. Uh, I'm from the north, the northeast, uh, had never been out of that region. So it did me a lot of good to, to go to a different part of the country and deal with hunters who come from a different hunting culture and, you know, see some different uh, habitat for deer. Um, 
in a roundabout way, I ended up back in New Hampshire as a New Hampshire Fish and Games deer and bear biologist. And it was at that time that I learned about QDMA. Um, I became a member immediately. And then uh, lo and behold, a few years later, uh, I was looking forward to getting back to Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. And uh, in one of the uh, the issues of Quality Whitetails, which is uh, the, the QDMA's journal, um, there was a job posting for uh, the first uh, QDMA position in the Northeast. And uh, it was a regional director position based out of Pennsylvania that would cover the whole Northeastern U.S. And uh, I knew that had my name written all over it. And uh, I applied. <laughs> and uh, that was 17 years ago. So uh, it, uh, oh, wow. it's so, yeah, so starting out, uh, you know, QDMA was not even uh, on my radar. Um, so I'm certainly glad for the time that, uh, that I had at the state agencies. But, uh, man, it's been a great ride with QDMA, and uh, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, I've got several friends that just graduated this year, and a couple they are going to be graduating soon with their natural resource and ecology degrees. And they're like, hey, man, in the state of Oklahoma, I think there's one job opening. And if someone retires, there may be two. And I'm like, dude, there's, there's, there's going to be 500 people graduating your, with your degree. And they're like, yeah, I know. And that's just, it, it kind of, it kind of bottles my mind that, you know, something that's so important to me is really understaffed. Like one guy, one guy managing a 20,000 acre piece of land, uh, for whitetail turkey and all those things just seems kind of crazy to me, but it happens a lot. It does. It, it really does. And, uh, you know, and actually today the wildlife field is, is not as competitive as it was in the past. Uh, there's far more jobs, uh, you know, lots of consulting jobs, um, you know, much more today than in the past. But uh, it, it definitely still is competitive. But uh, it's, it's crazy to think, you know, just ultra competitive it used to be. So uh, but fortunately for anybody who's an aspiring, you know, uh, wants a career in wildlife, uh, at least there are more opportunities today and stuff outside of just uh, government work. Right. Now, I think that's a great point. Um, but transitioning back here to the the QDMA, so I think one one word in the in the title that kind of uh, gets me a little bit is is quality. So, what does it mean to be a member of QDMA, and what do you guys mean quality deer management association? Because you could just be the deer management association, right? We just care about deer. We want to have more deer, more deer to hunt. But you guys, there's an emphasis on quality, and why is that? Uh, that really stems actually uh, out of uh, QDM, which is Quality Deer Management, uh, which comes from Texas originally. Um, there were some wildlife biologists in Texas, uh, you know, back in the, in the 60s and early 70s that said, you know what, we need to manage deer differently. And uh, in almost every uh, state in the country, you know, was managing deer by protecting the antlerless side of it and, you know, harvesting uh, every every legal buck. And, uh, and that type of uh, deer management is now termed traditional deer management. And it came about because when states were restocking deer, you needed to protect all the antlerless deer. So, hey, we shot bucks, we didn't shoot does, and, and that worked out great when deer herds were really low. Well, once deer herds became restocked and started growing like crazy, they realized, hey, you know what? We need to start shooting some antlerless deer too, and let's take some of the pressure off of these young bucks and allow some of them to, to, to mature. So there was some wildlife biologists in Texas that said, hey, because traditional deer management often ended up with overabundant deer herds, some people called it quantity deer management, meaning more deer than you can ever, uh, ever handle. So the people who said, hey, you know what, let's shoot some does, let's protect some bucks. This is Al Brothers, uh, is, the, is technically the father of QDM. He's the one that coined the term QDM, which stood for quality deer management. And it didn't mean, hey, we're better than you or 
It just meant rather than quantity deer management, let's manage so we have a healthier uh, deer herd. So that's where the term quality came from. So it was QDM. Well, then in 1988, when the QDMA was founded by Joe Hamilton, who was a, was a worked for the South Carolina DNR, he was a deer biologist for them. He took the term QDM and said, hey, we are going to be the, the leading association that fosters QDM or advocates for this style of deer management. So that's why he became or named it the, uh, the Quality Deer Management Association. So, yeah, so it has nothing to do with trying to be an elitist or, hey, we're better than you. It, it all had to do with just uh, that Texas biologist who uh, who was trying to differentiate between the different types of deer management. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. One thing that I I, I saw that you and wrote an article, um, I think it was last year or maybe the year before, about, about harvesting does. And I think you were talking about how the harvest of does had been declining, if I, if I think that was right. But, you know, why to someone that's listening, I grew up in a I grew up in in a hunting culture of, you know, I'm not going to shoot does every time I win. I got really excited. I'd see does. I'm like, Dad, can I shoot a doe? And he's like, no, like I don't want to shoot a doe. I don't want to clean the doe. We don't shoot does. They have babies every time. I actually used to hear the term or used to hear this all the time of if you shoot a doe, you might as well have shot three deer. You're killing three deer. And I was like, I don't I don't really know if that's true, but. You know, why is to you, uh, someone that is actually educated in the space, why is it really important for us to shoot does, you know, as we're, as we're shooting bucks as well? Well, uh, we want to keep deer herds relatively balanced from a, from a heart or an age, I'm sorry, from a sex racial standpoint. And if you take all of the fawns born in Texas, where you are this year or Pennsylvania, where I am or anywhere, about half of the fawns would be buck fawns and about half will be doe fawns. So if we want to keep the you know, adult sex ratio relatively balanced, we have to shoot about you know, equal numbers of bucks and does each year. Um, so because of that, it's very important to harvest does because in the majority of whitetails range in the U.S., you know, if we don't harvest enough analyzed deer, those deer herds just grow too high for what the habitats can support. Now, there are some exceptions. You know, there are places in New England uh, that are at the northern limit of, of whitetails range. Um, there's some places in the upper Midwest. Um, and actually even a few places in Nebraska where the, the deer herds just aren't all that productive. They're not dropping that many fawns. They're not recruiting that many fawns. So you can have successful deer management programs by shooting more bucks than does. However, for the vast majority of the U.S., you can't do that if you want to be successful. You need to shoot at least as many or more does each year as you do bucks. Otherwise, those deer herds just grow too high for what the habitats can support and then Deer herds suffer, the habitat suffers, and all the other wildlife species there suffer as well. So I've seen kind of this, even, you know, my experience hunting since I was, you know, eight to now being 22, I've seen this kind of cultural shift of, I think it's a lot more acceptable and a lot more um, promoted to shoot does now than it used to be. Uh, so, you know, why do you, why do you think that is? And I just want to preface that too with my uncle used to tell me stories about, you know, times where he would go out and see 18 does and zero bucks. And do you think that things like that are a direct result of people only shooting bucks and not harvesting any does? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. And that is exactly what QDM was born out of, uh, those type of things. You know, QDM was designed to balance deer herds with a habitat. Um, balanced the adult sex ratio so that it wasn't all does you know you had bucks there as well 
and then uh, you know balance the age structures too. So you know everybody has does all the way from you know fawns one and a half, two and a half up through full maturity. You know, but historically, very few places had that same age structure on the buck side. Well, uh, because of QDM and uh, that movement today, you know, there's very good age structure, probably better age structure on the buck side than, than we've ever had uh, since white man started uh, managing deer anyway. <laughs> One thing that you had talked about, too, in your articles was the idea of shooting the right doe, which I thought was really interesting because... I, I've kind of had this philosophy too of you know maybe shooting a younger doe, not shooting a fawn, or because when you're when you're shooting a fawn, you run a very good chance of shooting a button buck, which I know if anyone's hunted for a long time, they've probably experienced that at some point. That's very unfulfilling and very upsetting when you walk up on a button buck. But how do you how do you differentiate maybe an old doe, you know, one that is producing every year? I know we've had does that have produced in multiple fawns uh, for multiple years, and those are does that we don't want to shoot because they, they're great. They produce a lot of fawns. Um, so how do you discern maybe shooting a, a younger younger doe that's not a fawn, but you also don't want to shoot your best producing doe because she drops two fawns every, every year? How do you discern that and figure that out? You know, that really comes uh, about your specific situation, you know, and there are some where they have not a lot of fawns hitting the ground so they protect those exact does you're talking about say man we will never shoot these there are other parts of the country where people are at the exact opposite end of that where they can't shoot enough deer each year because the deer herds are just so productive that they don't want to shoot the young ones though they absolutely want to shoot the older ones that are most productive to try to get a handle on that deer herd and at least slow some of its growth so one of the things that we can do as hunters is, you know, we can at least try to estimate age in the field when we're looking at those animals. And unlike bucks, where we can look at bucks and from body characteristics, do a pretty good job breaking them into multiple age classes. We can't really do that with does. However, we can break them into at least three age classes, you know, fawns, uh, yearlings or one and a half year old does, and then does that are two and a half and older. So in a situation where, hey, we, if we want to protect you know, the most uh, reproductive part of our doe herd here, you know, we can focus on those one and a half year old does. Those are, you know, bigger than the fawns, um, but through body characteristics, you know, that we can tell, you know what, they are not older. They're not one of the oldest animals here. It's not always by size. You know, there's some older deer that are just statually not all that tall, but uh, there are some body characteristics that we can look at, you know, size of the head relative to the body, neck length, that kind of thing to at least, uh, give us a little bit of an idea. Hey, is this likely, you know, a one and a half year old doe versus something that's a lot older and then, you know, make a good harvest decision from that depending on your situation. So maybe I could ask you, what do you personally do? Because one of my favorite things to do, I love, I love to shoot a one and a half year old deer, tender meat, you know, smaller, maybe the difference between a one and a half year old doe is a, you know, is a 75 pound doe versus a 90 pound doe or a 95 pound doe. I've seen that happen quite a bit um, where I'm from in Oklahoma, but is that something that you would, you would also practice? Absolutely. And, uh, and it absolutely depends on where I am. For example, uh, I have been in South Texas in dry years where fawn crop is almost non-existent and we absolutely would not shoot any adult doe because every fawn that hit the ground was so important. I've also been in Illinois working or hunting where extremely productive deer herd doing everything possible to try to slow its growth. So you would never use a tag on a yearling doe because you want to save them for the older does that are the most reproductive segment of that society or that population. 
so that you can do everything possible to control that growth. So it really depends on where you are, uh, Christian, and, and just what where that deer herd is relative to, to how many the habitat can support. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think that's really insightful. Uh, one thing that you guys had talked about, you had wrote an article about, was uh, the idea that you know the number of three and a half year old deer versus the uh, bucks that are harvested versus the the number that are two and a half and younger that are harvested. Could you maybe run us through the numbers at the off the top of your head and kind of how you've seen this cultural shift from people maybe shooting you know younger younger deer spikes four points basket racks to these older age class deer and you know why you think that's happened. Sure. Uh, QDMA, we've been monitoring this, the harvest age structure of bucks uh, all the way back to 1989. So uh, back before you were even born. And uh, at that time, <laughs> about six out of every 10 bucks that were shot uh, were only one and a half years old. You know, very few bucks made it older than that. And uh, almost none of them made it to three and a half. So, uh, you know, the vast majority were just yearlings. Well, along comes QDMA and the educational series of, hey, teaching people the value of protecting yearling bucks, letting them get at least one year older. And then there's all these other benefits to the deer herd. And then, ooh, people start seeing this and realize, man, this is way more fun to also get to hunt bucks that are two years old and three years old and four and five. And so it's through educational efforts and hunters wanting to see this, that if you fast forward to today, all of the bucks killed in the United States today, only about a third of them are one and a half years old. I'm sorry, of all the antler bucks, so not the buck fawns, but of all the antler bucks, only uh, one-third of them are one-and-a-half years old. Another third are two-and-a-half, and approximately another third are three-and-a-half or older. So today, we are harvesting a higher percentage of three-and-a-half and older bucks than we ever have before. So hunters are absolutely reaping the benefits of this great age structure, and it's cool because we have cameras today. You know, So even if you're not killing these oldest bucks, you know, everybody has some scouting cameras where they're at least getting pictures of them and you know they're there. So, I mean, it's a fun time to be hunting. And it's really cool that we just have more older bucks running around across the United States than ever before. I agree. I think it's awesome that we get to hunt older age class deer. And I love that approach to management. But from an outside perspective, from someone that, that maybe doesn't hunt, you're like, you're trying to justify this. You know, I'm taking deer that uh, that are closer to the end of their life. You know, they're living long, fruitful lives, breeding lives, or doing all these things that they would normally do. I'm taking them a lot of people would say out of their misery, but what's the, uh, what's the reason for the environment for, or for the deer herd? What's the, what's the reason to take those older age class bucks versus, you know, these one and two year old deer? Well, one of the great thing about it is, you know, deer are far more social than most people realize, you know, and they evolved with a full age structure and, and a very complex social order. So for example, there's a lot of interaction that go on within a deer herd that the, the casual hunter doesn't realize. So for example, uh, researchers from the University of Georgia have identified nearly 50 different pieces of information that bucks are leaving about themselves through their forehead gland at a buck rub. A lot of hunters think that that rub is just a way to get rid of the velvet, and uh, but th that's not true. It's far more than that. And that forehead gland on a buck becomes very active during the rut. And, uh, but it only becomes that active in older bucks. So some of the information they're leaving there, you know, is, is sharing, is being shared to other does and to other bucks. And so there's a lot of that kind of thing that simply does not happen if you only have young bucks in the population. You know, will, will young bucks do the breeding? Absolutely. And lots of research has shown that even if you just have yearling bucks or one and two-year-old bucks, 
the doughs are still going to get bread and, and most of them will be bred on time. However, there's a lot more of the things that go on within a deer herd than just breeding to, to be able to measure how healthy this is. And deer herds evolved with an advanced uh, age structure like that. And uh, if you look at unhunted populations today, they have a, a very balanced or an advanced age structure. So as deer managers, man, we should do everything possible to make sure that we are doing that same thing for deer herds that we manage. And then as hunters, we just get to reap the benefits of that. So what's the, uh, I've heard different numbers and figures before, but what's the optimal ratio, you know, buck to doe ratio? I've heard four to one, three to one, two to one is optimal, but you know, in your experience and your all's research, what's the optimal buck to doe ratio? And it might vary, you know, depending by region or, or whatever, but what would you say? Yeah, it does vary some. Um, you want it to be balanced. And, and by balanced, you don't necessarily need it to be exactly one-to-one. -one. Um, a one-to-one -one ratio is really hard to achieve in, in the wild. And uh, even if you can achieve it, it it's harder to stay there. Uh, however, a two-to-one ratio, two adult does for every adult buck, uh, is very achievable. Um, that's a very healthy situation for, for deer herds to be at. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see, you know, one adult buck for every two adult does, but that is, is a balanced situation that everybody can uh, shoot for and, uh, and absolutely achieve. Much of the U.S. actually has uh, adult sex ratios, pre-hunt adult sex ratios. I'll make sure we understand this is what we have going into the deer season. Once you mm -hmm. get into the deer season, now if you're shooting a lot of bucks and not does, those sex ratios can become skewed. But a pre-hunt adult sex ratio, which is really what we're talking about when we say we want that to be balanced. Uh, most states, you know, have ratios of between one and a half and two adult does per adult buck. So those are all very healthy situations, really good from a deer herd end and from a hunting end. One other thing you had touched on on your on when you were talking about harvesting more does is the amount of meals that that could that that could uh, provide to people that are in need. So I'm going to let you explain it. What does it mean for people when they harvest more does and donate the venison, and what what effects does that have then on other agriculture and other uh, land? Oh, uh, it it all starts with with balancing a deer herd with a habitat. You know, making sure that we have the right number of deer for what the habitat can adequately support, you know, without degrading the habitat. So uh, at that balance point, the deer herd is extremely healthy. Uh, the habitat is healthy. That's a good place to be. Now, some areas that that balance point is much higher than others. But regardless of wherever you are, if you can harvest the right number of deer to keep it at that, that almost always means you're going to have more deer harvested than everybody that can use them or they you know that they want them which is perfect because then we have an opportunity to share that venison with others and it's it's a sad state of effect right now in the u.s one out of seven households is food insecure what that means is one out of seven households today do not have enough protein in the household so you take an area that has more deer than the habitat can support it's the perfect situation for hunters to be able to harvest those deer fill their own freezer share some with friends, but then be able to donate that additional venison to food banks, you know, et cetera, soup kitchens, churches, where you can get it into the homes of people who need it. So A, you remove deer that should be removed, which is perfect. B, you're able to give it to people who need it, which is perfect. And C, hunters are the champions of this in society's eye, which is absolutely perfect. You know, we, we don't get to hunt today because the majority of, uh, of the U.S. hunts only 4% of the U.S. today buys a hunting license. 
you know, you'll hear people say it's my God given right to hunt. So I get to do it. And man, I wish that was true, but that's not true. You know, we don't get to do anything because 4% of the population does it. We get to hunt because about 80% of the U S public supports hunting. And part of that support comes from hunters having a good public image, you know, and doing good things, good for society. There is nothing better we can do as hunters than to feed somebody who needs to, who needs to be fed. So, uh, that is hunters looking like champions in the public's eye. And man, that is so good for us. Yeah, I agree. I think that's definitely a, a way to cross the the border of perception versus reality into what we actually do, because um, that's a self-sustaining model of, of food. But one thing that you had touched on in the article was not only are we allowed to provide meals for people that are in need, like you said, the one in seven people are food deficient. Um, but also the opportunity costs or what it would cost to actually raise that food um, in terms of beef or pork or chicken. Could you talk about talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, we can look at, you know, what it costs us both in, you know, in dollars to, you know, to, to raise, you know, livestock um, or, you know, whether it's cattle or chickens or, or whatever. So it's it's far cheaper, you know, to do it naturally through wildlife. Um it's organic, which, you know, is, is a big deal today with a lot of people, you know, they want local meat, they want organic meat. Well, there is no better source of that, you know, the, the local venison. So not only is it helping us, we're doing it at a much reduced cost, both, you know, from a dollar perspective for me and you, but also from an input perspective, you know, uh, to, um, to the natural resources of, of our country, which is great. And then by removing those as well, we not only can provide that food, but then also we're making sure that all the other wildlife species out there, you know, are not being negatively impacted by having too many deer. And uh, some people are amazed, you know, at the amount of meals we absolutely can provide through hunting. Quick example, uh, QDMA has about 60,000 members. So, uh, you know, take a look at, you know, of all the hunters, there's 10 to 12 million deer hunters in the U.S. 60,000 of them belong to QDMA. Pretty small number, you know, within the deer hunters. However, we have a goal out of the next five years, QDMA members are going to share 20 million venison meals with somebody outside of their household. This is, you know, something I cook and, you know, have you over for a meal. And we're going to donate another 40 million venison meals, you know, to people in need. So think about this. If QDMA can do that, man, just think about if even 1% of all the hunters out there started sharing venison, and they probably do. But what I tell folks is, man, as hunters, we need to tell that story better. You know, we need to make sure the local papers know, folks like you know, and can advertise that, you know, to let society know all this free work that hunters are doing for them. So is there an actual uh, formal way for someone that hunts to actually share or uh, give away their venison? That's something I've thought about. I don't know if it exists at a state level or a local level or there's certain organizations, but you know, I've had deer meat before where I'm like, wow, I would actually like to give this to someone. I get, I ask everyone that I know, um, underprivileged families that I know, and, and people are very happy to take that meat and because it's delicious and nutritious. What do we do if we're looking for an organization or somewhere to give the meat that then distributes it to someone else? Well, each state's a little different. Um, so it's kind of on a state by state basis, but, uh, um, anybody the, the first place to call the best place to go is right to the state wildlife agency you know and ask them hey what what opportunities do i have for donating venison uh the vast majority of states have venison donation programs they're they come under all different names hunters sharing the harvest and hunters feeding the hungry and, and the like so I, I highly recommend folks hey contact your state wildlife agency ask what those options are 
And then some of them, you can just take a deer to a processor and drop it off for free. Some, there's a minimal amount you have to pay to have it processed. Others, um, line a hunter up. You, know, you can drop a deer off at a place where somebody else who wants it is on a list and can go get it. So uh, it's all over the board what those opportunities are. So uh, yeah, if folks call the state wildlife agency, they can hook them up with uh, exactly who they need and, uh, and then allow them to be able to, to provide that donation. Super excited for what you guys are doing uh, in terms of feeding people with venison. Um, it happens to be my favorite meat, and it's also very readily available, so that helps quite a bit. But uh, so, Kip, are you a private or a, or a public land hunter for the most part? I am uh, a private land hunter mostly. Um, I have spent a, a lot of time hunting public land. Um, I'm fortunate where I am now. I live in northern Pennsylvania, um, actually in the town that I grew up in, and, and I grew up on a dairy farm. And um, most of the land that we had as a child, my family still owns. So uh, I have a good opportunity to, to hunt private land. However, uh, I hunt public land uh, in, sometimes in Pennsylvania during turkey season. Um, I hunt public land in other states. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate for public land. Um, however, I, I realize, because uh, I have access to all the statistics, you know, uh, east of the Rocky Mountains, white-tailed deer management for the most part is a private land game. You know, the vast majority of, of whitetail uh, deer live on private land. The vast majority are harvested on private land. So uh, so at QDMA, we want to make sure we provide that resource to, to private landowners on how to enhance those habitats and to hunters on those lands to, you know, to educate them as much as possible. Um, at the same time, we do a fair amount of public land work because we recognize, man, not everybody has access to public land or to private land. You know, uh, not everybody's as lucky as I am to have, you know, a family farm to hunt on. So uh, there's a there's a, a lot of work done uh, in on public lands through QDMA. Um, but we do realize and, and recognize, you know, that most whitetails uh, last year, this year and in the foreseeable future are going to get shot on private lands. Yeah. So I, I ask I'm headed to some public this weekend, actually, in Oklahoma and southeast Oklahoma. And I think a lot of people. Uh, throughout the United States are hunting public lands. And I think a, a big issue um, with public lands is how how to go about deciphering where to hunt. So on a lot of these WMAs, uh, you know, they're not managed with food plots. A lot of them don't do controlled burns. I would hope that most of them do, but some some might not. Um, so how do you go about maybe from an e-map or an e-scouting perspective or without putting boots on the ground, what are the things that you're looking for online to, to maybe narrow down where the deer are going to be versus where they're not going to be or how I'm going to access it? How do you think about all that? I, I take a look at a map of the areas that I, that I may be hunting. Um, I contact the state wildlife agency um, and just ask them, Hey, this is, I'm going to be hunting on some of these areas. I'm not asking you for the best place to go. Um, but can you give me some information on uh, hunter use of these? You know, it, that's a good place to start. Okay, A, are there a lot of hunters on this one? Or, yeah, there's not that many hunters over here. Um, because just having an idea on hunter density or, you know, hunter pressure in these areas will give me an immediate idea of where I'm going to start scouting. Um, if hunter, because a lot of people are amazed that today, you know, the perception is that all, all these public lands are so over hunted, but the reality of it is there's a lot of them that receive very light hunting pressure. So, uh, it obviously depends on what state you're in and, and how much public land is available, but you can learn a lot with a call, you know, to the, the local biologist or the local game board to say, all right, you know, like how much use does this get? So that's the first place to start. And then I'll start looking at, all right, if, uh, if an area that I'm going to go hunt gets a lot of use, 
I am looking at where the access points are and where parts on that property are that are a long ways from the access points. And I'm going to start scouting um, by trying to get away from where I think the majority of the people are going to be. And uh, we'll start looking at the uh, vegetation types on there. And uh, I'm always looking at for any terrain features that we just I know will facilitate deer movement or any features that, hey, this just looks like, you know, if there's a lot of pressure, here's an area that looks a little thicker or is a little, you know, a younger vegetation that, that it may provide more cover if it's a forested situation. So, uh, and then get boots on the ground, go there and start checking that out. There's a lot of things you can learn from a map, but there's a lot of things that you actually have to be on the ground to see, all right, is this really what's here or not? Or is there any recent uh, habitat work that's been done? Like a recent cut, if it's a forested area, a recent burn. So uh, those are the, the immediate things that I start thinking of. I've been in situations where I've hunted around a bunch of other people and had good hunts. But for the most part, you know, if I am able to remove myself from where I think a lot of the pressure is going to be, I've typically had more success that way. So, uh, you know, that's what I choose to do. Um, I have been hunting public land sometimes with, with friends that, you know, for whatever reason, just physically can't get that far from an access point or just can't get as back as far as I personally would like. And uh, if that's the case, then, you know, I kind of change my expectations a little bit for, for what we might see. But uh, if I am able, um, I want to get away from where the vast majority of pressure is going to be and, uh, and get us into some heavier cover. That, that's in my place, the perfect spot to start. Okay. So uh, one thing that I think about too is, so for these places that don't have food plot, you said get off the beaten path, uh, obviously uh, anticipate how hunting pressure is going to happen, access points, stuff like that. So some of the places that I hunt, um, they are a lot of pine, um, a few oaks mi mixed in, and then a lot of very tall brush. So a lot of very, not brush, very tall grass. Uh, they burn every spring. Um, the grass might be waist deep. So a lot of the, a lot of the terrain that you're looking at, not only from an aerial perspective, but boots on the ground perspective looks very, very similar and they're scattered deer sign throughout. So uh, how, how would you go about narrowing down hunting in an area like that? Is it, um, I find recent rubs, I found, uh, some scrape, a scrape line that I'm going to hunt, or is it just kind of just picking and sitting and figuring it out by, uh, by using, you know, just time spent? Uh, well, well time spent's always a very good, a very good help. But, uh, in those situations that, you know, if there's not something that looks like, Ooh, this is definitely where deer are bedding. This is definitely where deer are feeding. Um, if you don't have that scenario where everything's kind of like, yeah, they just may be anywhere, you know, throughout this large area. Um, I immediately are going to start looking at where different cover types come together. You know, some of those edges only because you get some different plants in there, um, which oftentimes provides good forage. And you get uh, a lot of travel through those. You know, deer just want to be where you end up with that diversity of plants for both feeding and, and movement. So, uh, you know, if I have an opportunity where, ooh, there's a lot of really good cover in this area, I will focus on that every time. I would focus on that over food um, in a situation where there's, there's a lot of hunting pressure. Because, uh, you know, deer can eat at nighttime when we can't hunt them. But, uh, you know, they're not going to be there if there's not good cover. So, uh, so I, I look at cover more than food in most cases, and especially in situations where there is a lot of hunting pressure. So, uh, if there, but if there's not some cover that just really stands out more than others, everything's kind of pretty uh, similar, then I'm looking for any type of uh, edge between some different vegetation types or any type of terrain differences that will help facilitate some deer movement. And uh, I'll begin my search there.
No, I think that's a great idea. That's definitely good stuff to to take home and uh, to think about, especially <clears throat> when you got your boots on the ground and you're walking through some really thick stuff. Uh, but Kip, does uh, does it uh, worry you at all um, when you think about maybe uh, the trend over the last few years? I don't know if it's continuing to go down, but the number of the number of hunters uh, that are participating in hunting is was declining uh, the last time that I was updated, but it may be maybe going back up. But does that does that worry you from you know a QDMA perspective? Uh, people not enjoying the sport anymore. Absolutely, and uh, we have you know fewer hunters today than we've had in the past and it, it is declining at a very rapid rate and uh essentially you know as the baby boomers age out um the number of hunters is really dropping we're we are not replacing uh our aging hunters by anywhere near a similar number of younger hunters so that's a huge concern for me partly because as we lose hunters that means we lose ambassadors for hunting you know we lose advocates for hunting which means we have less influence uh in our political arenas for hunting uh, but it also means that we have less dollars to manage wildlife. Uh, the North American model of wildlife conservation is the envy of the world, and it is based on uh, a user pay system. You know, there's a lot of hunters that don't even realize uh, the excise taxes that they pay on a bunch of our hunting equipment today. Um, you know, like when you go buy, you know, your uh, your rifles and some of your archery equipment and there is a tax bill into that that automatically goes to the state wildlife agencies specifically to manage wildlife. So as we have fewer hunters, fewer people buying licenses, there's less money that goes into managing our wildlife. So, uh, yeah, so fewer hunters um, is not good at all for the future of hunting. And uh, that's why every state wildlife agency, uh, every you know wildlife conservation organization is looking at doing everything possible to bolster the number of hunters that we have coming up because uh, the system that we have now is is definitely not working given that we have fewer and fewer hunters every year. Yeah, I imagine that puts an immense amount of pressure on on you guys too because not only are you trying to get people to to hunt in an intentional and a management minded way, but you're also just getting trying to get people to hunt, you know? So at the end of the day, if a guy's going to shoot a one and a half year old deer I don't want to criticize him and get him out of the woods and contributing in conservation and, and and wildlife management and habitat management. But I feel like that happens quite a bit in this social media age. Yeah, it certainly does. And that's too bad. And, uh, and, uh, we absolutely need every hunter and, uh, and as hunters, we need to be together and, you know, we, we definitely don't need to be chastising somebody else for something that they chose to shoot. If that was a legal animal. And, uh, I wrote an article uh, a couple of years ago, you know, about, uh, you know, my favorite bucks aren't necessarily the biggest ones I've shot. And, uh, and that came about because a good friend of mine had shot, had a great hunt that year. And actually it was in Texas, had a great hunt, um, shot a buck, um, was with a group of friends afterwards. I was one of them and, uh, never said a word about it. And it wasn't until after the kind of the group broke up and, um, I said something to him and he said, yeah, actually. And I said, geez, why don't you tell us? And he said, well, you know, it wasn't the biggest year I've ever shot. And I realized, you know, he, he felt bad to the point like he didn't want to tell the rest of us that he shot that because he felt that he would be criticized, which was not true at all. But it made me realize, you know, if he, if that, if he said that, there's a lot of others like that too. So uh, I wrote that article and, and essentially told people, you know, don't ever apologize for shooting a deer. If you shot it because it's legal and it makes you happy, celebrate it. I don't care if it's not the biggest buck in the world or the biggest buck you've ever shot or whatever. If it's legal, you know, and it fed your family and others, 
and it was part of a good wildlife management program, celebrate it. You know, don't ever apologize for that. So, uh, but yes, as hunters, uh, we often do that too much for new hunters or aspiring hunters. And uh, so we, we need to get away from that, you know, and celebrate everybody that wants to be a hunter like us, you know, and bring them along. I'm guessing, you know, when you started, you probably shot some smaller bucks than maybe you shoot today. I know I certainly did. I shot piles of of yearling bucks when I started because <laughs> we didn't know anybody. That's all there was. So, uh, you know, I will never chastise somebody, you know, for shooting, particularly new hunters, you know, for shooting, uh, you know, a yearling buck or something that's smaller. Not by any means, man. I'll be the first to congratulate them, shake their hand and, uh, you know, ask if I can get a picture of them with their deer. Yeah, no, that's definitely agreed. I mean, that that happened to me. I mean, I think I fall into that trap sometimes, sometimes too. I mean, last year, uh, had really high hopes, had a lot of really good deer on camera on private land. Um, you know, I think the biggest deer I've ever killed is like 130 inches. And I obviously would like to get a better deer than that. And I ended up shooting, you know, in the last day of rifle season, ended up shooting a, a deer that probably wouldn't even score a hundred inches. It's just a four and a half year old seven point never came into any, just never became, um, a, a bigger deer in terms of horns had broken tines. And, you know, I felt a little under accomplished because of that. You know, you're like, this isn't what I set out to kill or, you know, I'm not happy with this eight, this deer. And I was like, you know what? You killed a mature deer. You did it in the right way. You waited a long, you waited the entire rifle season as long as you could to maybe harvest a, a either an even older deer or a, a deer with a better rack of with similar age. And that's what presented its opportunity. And now I look back at, at that as one of my more fond memories, but at the time it wasn't. And I think that's an issue that we have uh, really throughout hunting culture as a whole. No, you're right. And, you know, and social media certainly plays into that. And, and man, at times it feels like, you know, everybody I know is killing big deer and putting it on social <laughs> media. I feel like right? I'm the only one that's not. You know, and the reality of it is there are certainly some, you know, the vast majority are not killing, you know, monster deer every year. Um so for those that do, man, kudos for you, you know, heck yeah, show it off. I, you know, I applaud you for it, but, uh, for everybody else, you just need to realize, Hey, you know, we have the ability to share information more than ever before. So we get to see those. And I think it's cool. I like to see them too, but, uh, you know, I always remind hunters and especially newer ones, Hey, you know, it's the exception to kill a deer, you know, that, that's five and a half years old or, you know, or scores, you know, 130 or more inches or, you know, whatever the case may be. So, uh, Hey, there's, there's a lot more to hunting you know, than just the number of inches, you know, of antlers there. And, uh, so yeah, we, we often need to remind ourselves that, that, uh, there's hunting is fun and, you know, we need to have fun when we're hunting and it's not all about, you know, the number of inches you bring home at the end of the day. Right now. Exactly. So one thing that I'm not educated a lot on, and I know that you, you understand is chronic waste disease or chronic wasting disease. And I think, you know, uh, I just don't understand it in terms of uh, I haven't seen it uh, firsthand in Oklahoma or Texas. I don't know if those are states that have uh, seen the effects of it. For, but, you know, for someone that does really enjoy their state and doesn't want to introduce something like that into their state and wants to actively fight against those things, how do you how do you do that from a state that doesn't have it? Is it just discouraging other people that come from those states to bring their deer harvest into yours? or Or what does that look like? Yeah, chronic wasting disease or, or CWD is one of the biggest issues impacting deer hunting today uh, and in for the foreseeable future. Um, it's in both of the states you mentioned. Uh, Texas has it. Uh, it's been found in a few different places in your state. Uh, in Oklahoma, it's been found in a captive deer herd, um, not in the wild yet, which is very good. But uh, 
today, it, it has been found in 26 states. So it's in over half of the U.S. and, and growing like crazy. So as hunters, you know, we absolutely want to stop the spread of it. Um, right now, we don't know how to get rid of it. Um, there's a lot of research going on to, to try to stop it. Um, there are some that says, you know, it's not a big deal. Mother Nature is going to take care of itself. Uh, that, that is not true. Uh, the vast majority of wildlife experts and uh, who are working with deer or working on this disease agree. This is a really, really big deal. So uh, as hunters, the best things that we can do today are, one, we can uh, stop moving live deer um, because there's no good uh, practical live animal test. And, uh, and deer can have the disease for, for months or even a couple of years without showing any signs. So the only really good way to tell is, you know, once the deer's dead, we can test uh, the brain stem or, or the, the, uh, the lymph nodes. So um, there's no good way. So anyway, we can stop moving live deer and, uh, and we can stop moving the, the high risk parts of deer that we shoot. Um, the, the, the prions are those are the things that, that cause CWD. They accumulate in the eyes, the brain, the spleen, the backbone, uh, and, and the lymph nodes. Um, so if we don't move those, then we can help not spread the disease. And then that's why so many states today do not allow you to bring those high-risk parts in from deer that you shoot. Because say, uh, you know, you go to, to Wisconsin, shoot a deer that has CWD, even though you don't know it, it, does, it looks healthy, you take that deer back home to Texas dump those that carcass somewhere you can unknowingly have moved the disease to your backyard so uh so that's why more and more states are not allowing you to bring that stuff in which is good and uh you know so but as hunters we just need to make sure that we are aware of the laws you know so we're not moving those and uh, so also that we tell our hunt buddies hey you know don't be moving you know you know leave the, those high-risk parts where you shoot that deer don't be particularly don't be leaving a diseased area with them so um, so anyway, as hunters, those are the best things we can do. Don't move live deer. Don't move the high-risk parts of harvested deer. And then just buy time, man, until, uh, until the science can catch up and, uh, and let us know how to beat this disease. Yeah, maybe we could get into the specifics of the, specifics of the disease because I know that it, uh, that it affects deer. I don't know if it's neurologically in, in the brain or, or I've seen some maybe walking in circles kind of just looking like a zombie. What is, what is the disease? What is it actually and what does it do to a deer? Yeah, it's a, it's a disease that essentially eats holes in a deer's brain. Um, it's not bacterial, so we can't give it a, an antibiotic to kill it. Um, it's not viral. So it's something very different. You know, a prion, um, they're, they're misfolded prions, essentially, that, that causes. That's a big one. What hunters, all hunters need to know is, hey, there's no vaccine for it. There's no cure for it. It's 100% fatal to all deer that get it. And, uh, and it kills them, essentially, by eating a hole in the deer's brain. Now, there's a long incubation period. So what that means is deer will have this, from, on average, from 18 to 24 months before they show any symptoms. Deer appear completely healthy. However... During that time that they have got the disease, even though they don't show it, they are shedding these uh, infectious materials and other deer that come in contact with them can then contract the disease. And they shed these infectious materials in their urine and feces and in the blood and, and in saliva. So, you know, that's why other deer come in contact with the stuff can then contract the disease, which is really bad. Now, once deer start showing the symptoms, which is, you know, they essentially just waste away. They become emaciated. They walk in circles, you know, all the things you mentioned. Once they start showing those symptoms, they die very quickly. However, most deer that have CWD 
get killed by something else before they show the symptoms. So some will say, see, it doesn't matter. We still get to hunt them and they're fine. Well, no, that's not true because research shows that if a deer has CWD, it is two to four times more likely to die this year than a deer that doesn't have it. So what happens is once the deer gets it, even though you or I can't look at it until it has it, it is two to four times more likely to get hit by a car or get eaten by a coyote or die you know, to a hunter or some other disease. So you, know, you take any other species, turkeys, quail, bear, anything. And if I told you, hey, there's a certain segment of that population that's going to die at two to four times the rate of all the others, is this good or bad? And of course you say, that's terrible. Yeah, well, that's exactly what's going on with deer with CWD. So, you know, that's why we don't find a lot of really sick looking deer because they die of something else first. Doesn't make it any less serious, you know, they're dying like crazy. It's just we don't see them wasted away or emaciated. So some men have said, ah, this is not that big of a deal, but it is absolutely a huge deal. And the second thing that research has found is that deer with CWD are, are less active than deer that don't have it. So how many times have, when you get ready to go hunt, do you tell your buddies, man, I hope deer are not active today when I'm hunting. Have you ever said that? <laughs> Never. No, of course not. We don't say that. We want deer to be active. We want them to be on their feet moving like crazy. But once deer have CWD, even when they're not showing any signs, they're less active. So, uh, so that, you know, that's not good for us from a hunting end either, you know, and maybe that's what makes them a little more likely to, to, uh, to, you know, to get eaten by a predator or hit by a car or something. Uh, so anyway, this is not a good deal for us. And, uh, it's, uh, it's something that it's a good thing. There's a lot of people and, and a lot of really smart people working on because uh, it does not bode well for the future of deer uh, until we can get this thing figured out. Yeah, I, I imagine it'd be a little bit easier if a deer with CWD walked by and was getting its brain eaten away to harvest. But like you said, I think most of those probably get get taken off by uh, predators before they make it to us. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, Kip, that's a... Uh, that's all I had um, in terms of questions for you. Uh, I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast and, and educating. It's always really, really beneficial for not only for me, but to the audience and to the listener um, to learn more about what you guys are doing at QDMA. I mean, I eventually want to talk to all of you guys at QDMA. I think you each have your own specialties and disciplines that you can speak life into, but I really appreciate it, man. I feel like I'm a better hunter because I talk to you. Oh, good deal. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you and, um, you know, and I tell you, listeners, we have all kinds of, of, of deer and, and hunting and, and habitat information on our website at qdma.com. It's all free. You know, if folks want to go grab that, I encourage them to do so. Uh, it's all about teaching them a little more about deer, helping them be a little more successful uh, in the woods each fall. So if someone wants to keep up with the QDMA, um, one, how do they become a member? And two, where can they do that? Uh, they can join right at our website. Uh, the website is qdma.com. Um, that gives them access to all of our educational materials, get some uh, our, our journal quality whitetails numerous times a year. Um, they can sign up for our newsletter. So when, when all of the new information comes out, you know, they can get that at their inbox. Uh, our goal is to keep deer hunters informed of the newest research, the newest strategies and techniques. And uh, we do that through, you know, the website, through the magazine and other means. But uh, we're hunters, too. And uh, so we know the information we want to get. So we make sure we get that out into to their hands as well. That's awesome. Well, Kip, I really admire what you guys are doing at QDMA. And I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. And I look forward to talking to you on the podcast maybe sometime in the future. All right. That sounds great, Christian. And uh, hey, good luck to you uh, this hunting season.
Thank you. You too, man. I hope you get the big one. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it. And we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.